friends and let us praise the Lord for the sprinkles that I got coming in. Was it still sprinkling when you came in? No? Well. So the, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. I'll let you decide which category you belong to. How about that? What a delight it is to be together tonight. Let's pray together as we begin. And now, gracious Jesus, we thank you that we're together again. We're reminded, Lord, that it is good to be in your house and good to be together. I pray for your blessings and your wisdom over this evening. We pray, Father God, your blessings over our friends, the Cares, the Shorts, the Dorchesters. I ask, God, your mercy over each of those who have lost loved ones. I thank you today, Lord, that we can say confidently you have called each of them home. We rejoice, Lord, this separation is just temporary. So guide us now, Lord Jesus, in this time we'll share. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let us begin with a confession. This book is not one that is easy to understand. You knew that, didn't you? That's why you're here. Maybe Darren knows something that can help me along my way. I will warn you that as I was putting together tonight's Five at Five, I was listening in my mind's and, uh, and soul's heart to my mother. My mother loved Jesus with all of her heart. And she would come to me with questions about the Bible or about Revelation. And she would come with questions to ask how to understand this or that. Heartfelt, serious questions looking for a sincere answer. I would give her an academic answer that would never fail to disappoint her. She would look at me with a disappointed or a disapproving look. I never could tell the difference. For all that fancy learning, Darren, I thought we would get more for our money. I understand her frustration. And yet, let us remind ourselves of what we have said all along with regard to Revelation. It is an apocalyptic book whose meaning is somewhat hidden from us. We do not have the key to the interpretive elements that we would like, nor do we have all of the pieces that we would prefer if we were to write up a list of wishes. Sadly, Revelation is not a wish list. You remember the wish book that Sears used to do? Oh my goodness, that was my grandmother's favorite thing to set before us because she knew we'd been entertained for at least an hour looking over it. An hour of quiet, that's a rare commodity when, uh, in my household. This is not a wish book. It is, however, a testimony. A testimony of at least four visions that coincide with the end of time. Tonight's talk, we're basing largely out of Revelation 16. When we get to Revelation 16, we are cognizant that we are nearing the end of what I believe is the third vision. Now, when I say that, some of you are going to look in your study Bibles and say, but Darren, mine has it different than that. Don't we all? I spent a year in Revelation study and came away with far more questions than answers. My interpretation of it is this is near the end of the third. Not only that, Revelation 16 is the 
big overview, and then Revelation 17 and 18 are the more close-up view of what happened in 16. The good news is the fourth and final vision starts in Revelation 19, and we will get to that in November. It is the best news of all that victory has finally come. So understand that tonight's talk is intended to bring light, not just heat. But it may bring some heat because you'll be like, but wait a minute, Darren. I had more questions about that than wanted more specific answers. I will tell you, friends, I can only be as explicit as Scripture provides opportunity. If that disappoints you, then I remind you I'm in distribution, not management. The Word of God has been given to me just like it was you, and we will take it for what it is. With that in mind, let us read again the final four verses, five verses of Revelation 16. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of his, the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were left to be found, and great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Thus ends the seven bowls of God's wrath, and thus ends the judgment section of this portion of the vision. Let us begin with this first question. Why are there three sets of judgments? The seal judgments, the ones we started with in chapters 6 and 7. The trumpet judgments, the ones that followed in 9 and 10. And now the bowl judgments in chapter 16. The way I read them is thus. They reflect an increasing severity of God's wrath. Even if they are not all to be taken literally, all the judgments I mean. Their severity proclaims God's interest in being taken serious about his call to repentance. In other words, if the seal judgments didn't get your attention, then maybe the trumpet judgments will. If the trumpet judgments didn't get your attention, then maybe the bowl judgments will. But if all three of them together won't get your attention, then it's three strikes and you're out. This moment in time of the severity of these judgments reflects God's passion for his own holiness, but also a clarity that says unrighteousness will be repaid. One reason, I think, for three sets of judgments is akin to a set of mirrors, each reflecting the same thing, but from a different perspective, not unlike you would find at a clothing store where you put on the clothing they want to sell you and they stand you in front of a group of mirrors and you can see yourself. It's yourself and all of the reflections and yet the subject doesn't change just the way it's perceived. Perhaps the judgments are just such an example of that. 
Now, this next question is one that I suspicion will garner me the most, I'll say second most tonight, energetic response. It's the one that I was thinking of when I started talking about with my discussion about my mother. For you see, the question is, are Revelation 16 through 18 chronologically ordered? If they are, then much of the earth is utterly ruined. If we were to take them chronologically, then God says it's done in verse 17, and then continues to pour out his judgment as events continue to take place. As you might have surmised, my answer to this question is not necessarily. Perhaps chapters 16 through 18 are overlapping. Some of you may have picked up on that this morning in something I said, where Revelation 16 gives us an overview, a big picture of what's happened as the bold judgments are poured out. And then 17 and 18 give us a more in-depth view of specific instances and specific elements of that. It's a little bit like one of my favorite things, layer cakes. Now, if you really want to get my attention, show up at my house with a strawberry layer cake, one that has frosting between each layer. This, friends, is not unlike that. If it is not chronologically ordered, then these lay on top of each other, albeit not necessarily in straight layers. As we've reminded ourselves throughout this study, this is an apocalyptic literature. As such, reading it as a novel or a newspaper might not read us to the full measure of understanding we desire. Could it be that we need a new set of glasses? Could it be that we need a new set of understanding? If we read it apocalyptically, it may be surmised that it is what I've mentioned a moment ago. Chapter 16 tells us what happened. Chapter 17 and 18 tell us more. Now, when we talk about this chronological ordering of 16 to 18, let's just pause for a moment and step back a little further. Because the reality is, my view of Revelation says that it's four visions that are perhaps all overlapping. Revelation 1 to one through three, the letters, that's the first vision. Revelation four to seven, the second vision. Revelation eight to 18, the third. And Revelation 19 to 22, the fourth. Now, is that view unique to me? Did I write that? Oh, heavens, no. But it is a reminder that we will group Revelation somehow, even if it isn't chronologically ordered. One of the challenges that we see in our desire is something that I caution you against again. We are Western thinkers where A necessarily and always leads to B. But in apocalyptic literature, B may not in fact follow A, it might be Q. That drives us crazy because we want more sequence and order than that. Let us rejoice though that God has the key. And because he does, I can trust him, even if Revelation is not chronically ordered. Let us move on to the third question for tonight. 
Why is God's wrath so difficult for us? Hmm. There are a great many of us who prefer to think of God as a kindly, benevolent grandfather who will only give us good things and never correct us. Never. I want you to see, however, the angels in chapter 16 specifically. We spent a lot of our time this morning talking about the bulls, and rightfully so, for they are the prime movers and the primary agent that the chapter focuses on. But I want you to notice the agents of the agency, that is, the angels who poured the bowls out. When you see them, those who have been with God from eternity past and into eternity future, when you see them step forward, there's not a moment's hesitation They understand that their actions, their choices, their obedience to him is not because God is vengeful. It is because God's holiness and the humanity and sin of humanity cannot stand together. There must be a recompense made for it. Why is that so difficult for us? Because our view of God is wrong. Let's just call it like we see it. When we see God wrongly, we will interpret his wrath wrongly. When we see his wrath wrongly, then we will understand his character wrongly. So a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, I'll just jump right into Revelation without ever taking time to understand God's character. Friends, the two go hand in hand. If you want to understand something about Revelation, start by studying God's character. And if you want to understand who it is that God wants us to be, then go with me to Ephesians 1. Verses 3 to 14 are a description of who we are. It's all one sentence in Greek. Craziest sentence you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. Longest sentence in the New Testament. But in that that sentence, more appropriately a paragraph, In that section, we're told who we are. And we are those things because God has made us those things. And he has made us those things because it's who he is that has made us. And now we're back, I hope, to where we started with this conversation. If I want to understand something about Revelation, I need to start at the beginning, with who God is. Not a chronology of end times, but a character of a loving God in his holiness, bringing things into right relationship with him one way or the other. Like most of us, we prefer to think of ourselves as not deserving of God's wrath. It's for those bad people who deserve it, not us good people. Not unlike the last time I visited Lola Kerr, at her apartment at Manor Park. Lola was just shy of 102 that particular day. We sat together talking, and she said, Darren, I look around me here at Manor Park. I feel sorry for those old people. I nodded knowingly, and she laughed at her own joke. And She said, those old people will never know the joy of being young like me perspective, isn't it? One of the real problems that we have is how we view God. Because we see ourselves and God wrongly, 
we will divide between ourselves as the good people and those who don't do what we do as the bad. Almost invariably, we are the good ones. Almost invariably, they, whoever they might be, are the bad ones. Understanding, however, that all of us who are the bad ones, which is all of us, we understand how good God's gift of grace really is. When I understand that, then I understand God's wrath and the necessity of it. A wrathless God cannot be holy. If there is no holiness, then there is no place for his wrath. Let us rejoice then that God's wrath exists. And let us also embrace God's call to repentance in order that we might find Christ's forgiveness and thereby avoid God's wrath. Let us move on to the fourth question for the evening. Could some of these bowls be either caused or the result of natural events? Well, the short answer is yes. God can and will use any and all means to accomplish his purposes. As a college student, I remember reading a passionate uh, rendition of a Revelation commentary talking about these ulcerous sores of the first bowl. Well, these ulcerous bowls, these ulcerous sores, the author went on to say, are the direct result of a nuclear fallout. Well, when you factor in that the theologian writing that was living in a Cold War era, then it makes sense, doesn't it? He interpreted it through his lens. There's nothing wrong with that. He gave it his best swing. Could it be that? Absolutely. Likewise, could the destruction of sea life in verse 3 be the additional result of nuclear fallout? Sure. Could the darkening of the sun in verse 8 be a result of fires burning throughout the cities on the, of the earth or of the lands? Absolutely. These questions are intended to highlight the severity of these judgments, but the cause or result of it isn't nearly as significant as the God who sent them. We want to interpret them in order that we might understand them, maybe even limit them and say, well, because I can draw a circle around it or build a box in which to contain it, then I don't have to fear it quite as much. But today I want to encourage you, rather than living in fear of that, take instead joy in being anchored to the God who sent them in the first place and the fact that Jesus has already paid you see, the reality is God's desire is that all humanity will repent, that all of them will turn to Christ and find release for their sins. If they refuse, then they must pay the penalty themselves. And some would rather try that. But their destruction is as sure as God's holiness. And now, the question that uh, I've gotten probably more than any other throughout this series. Will Jesus' people be there for the bowls? I really hesitated to put this question in. Not because the answer isn't important, that's why I included it. 
but because the answer isn't as easy as some would like us to think. Do you remember back, maybe it was late January, it was definitely no later than early February, when I brought you a series of charts, and I said to you something along the lines of how you understand these charts will determine how you understand the last half of the book of Revelation. You might go back into that time frame if you're interested, or if you'd like me to send those charts to you again, I'll be happy to. I didn't bring them tonight in interest of time. We have church conference to follow here in a moment. But one of the things that really is the differentiator is this question right here. The unspoken element is, when will Jesus return? Now, let me read to you what I've written. The answer isn't as clear as we'd like. It doesn't seem that Jesus' people will be there, but the answer hinges on how you understand the return of Christ. His second coming is evident in Revelation 19. We'll get there just in time for Thanksgiving. However, that doesn't necessarily mean it's chronological to Revelation 15 through 18. Could the return of Christ have taken place sometime in Revelation 12. And we didn't observe it then because the Apostle John didn't include it until Revelation 19. It's very possible. Furthermore, for those who would argue for a dispensational understanding of the book of Revelation and the New Testament in general, they would suggest that there are two elements to the return of Christ. The rapture when Jesus returns for the church And he raises them out. He lifts them from the earth. He raises the dead and they ascend up to heaven. And the second return of Christ, which is in Revelation 19, where Christ sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and wipes out things and defeats all of his enemies, those are for the dispensationalists, two separate events. The only flaw that I can see in that is the word rapture is never used in the book of Revelation nor in the New Testament, for that matter. There are terms that we've translated rapture. It's a Latin term, means to return. But it is not something that we find necessarily specific in Scripture. For the alternative viewpoint, or one alternative of the viewpoints to dispensationalism, is historical perspective, which says that there will be yet one return of Christ, and that's in Revelation 19. For all of us, that are walking with Christ, should we survive, then the return of Christ will sweep us up at that time. Now, which one is right? Well, you tell me and we'll both know. What then does the Christian do? I want you to see what I've written here because it's something that was given to me and I believe it's a faithful answer to this question. Prepare for the worst, hope for the best. For many in our world that are not Americans, they regard themselves as under tribulation now. If you were uh, at one of our friend Gitana's recent meetings, and perhaps you heard him talk about the persecution taking place among the church in Ethiopia, and Djibouti, and Sudan, kind of things that are horrific 
and that we would like to think don't happen anymore in the world, but indeed they do. If you ask those believers, is Jesus coming back? Yes, their answer would be unequivocally. And they wouldn't be that interested in talking about missing out on the tribulation. So, I will say with absolute clarity, we don't know. And someone who tells you otherwise is probably selling a book or a movie. But why is it so clear in so many of our minds? Because of the popularity of book series like uh, the Left Behind series and the movies that accompany them. That presents a very definitive view of the theological return of Christ and what it will be like. What we can say is that Jesus is coming. And when he does return, he'll set it all right. We won't have to ask if this is it when he does come back. Nor will we have to ask if he really means it. We will say, though, the victor has returned. All right, then. We're ready for this week's rendition of Stump the Chump. You uh, perhaps have questions. I will do my best to answer them. Okay, then. So I, I kind of thought that would be the case. I, I got a sneak preview in a meeting I had earlier this afternoon. Uh, one of our dear sweet sisters, she looked at me with the same look that my mother used to look at me with and said, Darren, I don't like that answer. Uh, she didn't say it quite that way. I don't want to misinterpret her. She was hoping for more. Friends, I want to encourage you with this. Don't get so trapped into trying to figure out when Jesus returns that you forgive, forget why he's coming. He's coming for you. And if he returns during your lifetime, then wonderful. If he doesn't, then remain faithful to him and it won't matter in the first place. Let me pray for us and then we'll enter into our church conference time. Gracious Jesus, thank you that your return is certain. We would love, Lord, to know more details about it. We would be grateful for more information so that we might be certain of what it means and how to understand it. But Jesus, rather than that, let us rejoice that your return is certain, even if we don't know all the details. Let us be faithful in our service to you while we wait, and let us look eagerly to the eastern sky, believing with every ounce of our being that at any moment you could return and set everything right. We look forward to that, Lord Jesus. And we anticipate it eagerly. We love you, and we commit this church conference time to you now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.